Uh, yes, I had an everything bagel with sausage, egg, and cheese. That's decadent. Delicious. That's a, that's a young man's breakfast. I need a full breakfast. I ate a kashi bar. It's pretty lame. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, joining me today, we've got uh, Dylan Matthews, who has been on the show before, but we are banning from talking about universal basic income. Uh, nobody will be given money uh, for any reason under any of the topics we talk about, uh, but but thanks for being here. Uh, also, our colleague, uh, Andrew Prokop, uh, covers uh, uh, the White House and, and political matters uh, here, here at uh, Vox.com. Uh, glad to have you on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, um, it's going to be great. The big news this week, you know, in terms of substance, is Donald Trump's decision to pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement. This was announced yesterday as we're recording. Uh, By the time he announced it, I think it had come to be expected. There were sort of enough leaks. He he built a little drama that just said, like, I'm going to do an announcement on my decision. But it it was pretty clear that that meant he was pulling out. But relative to where we were a few months ago or even a few weeks ago, um, I do think it's something of a surprise. There had been considerable support from his administration for the idea of staying in. A lot of the business community wanted to stay in. And a big part of the reason is that the agreement itself did not include a lot of binding action on the United States. Uh, Barack Obama put this thing together um, diplomatically, but relatively late in his administration when he could not credibly promise dramatic new policy initiatives. And, you know, so he didn't. Um, and it just sort of said the U.S. would would continue on its same kind of course. But from a diplomatic standpoint, you know, the agreement can now unravel. Other countries might retaliate. Uh, there seems to be a lot of foreign leaders dunking on Twitter on Donald Trump, which is a, a strange new phenomenon. But Andrew had a, an interesting piece uh, on the site. And you're making the case that this is basically an example of Donald Trump being just a pretty standard issue Republican. I would say maybe not a standard issue Republican, but definitely um, sort of where the conservative base is and where um, a pretty significant portion of uh, the conservative institutional actors in the Republican Party are, whether that's think tanks, whether that's uh, elected officials, whether that's big donors, activist groups. Um, I I think that some of the coverage of this has sort of portrayed it as an idiosyncratic, weird decision by Donald Trump or perhaps Steve Bannon, who is pushing this kind of anti-globalist agenda. But I think what we have to keep in mind here is that, you know, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and 21 other Republican senators sent Trump a letter calling on him to do this. Um, most major conservative activist groups did the same, whether it's, um, you know, Americans for Prosperity, which is the Koch brothers group or the Heritage Foundation. Um, they were all behind this. And, and then you can see it in the conservative media outlets, too, and not just the people who are usually in Trump's corner, like Fox News and Breitbart, but even National Review, which is has had that usually pretty anti-Trump skeptical yeah, take. The anti-Trump stance and and 
I actually saw David French, who was considering actually running for president against Trump as an independent, uh, he wrote an article praising Trump's pulling out of Paris as like the right thing for the Constitution. So I, I do think it's important to keep in mind here that there is a spectrum of opinion in the Republican Party on whether they should outwardly say they don't believe in climate science, global warming either isn't happening or humans aren't uh, contributing to it, uh, or whether they should sort of acknowledge the science but contrive reasons to oppose proposals to do very much about it. I mean, something I do wonder about this is how much of conservative support for this move is driven by the fact that it's the move Trump decided to make versus the other way around. That, you know, if Trump had gone on a different course and had said, you know, look, we're doing whatever with with the EPA and, you know, changing whatever in in the domestic funding, but as a foreign policy matter, we are staying inside this global climate framework, you know, as Bob Corker said we should, as Mitt Romney said we should. Would David French have been denouncing Trump? Because I feel like the never-Trumper intellectuals are like in this weird place where you can go like Bill Kristol and David Frum have totally marginalized themselves or else you need to every once in a while write this like, I criticize Trump when he's wrong, but you know, he's he's doing the right thing here kind of takes. Right. Like I, I'm not an expert in the collected works of David French. My guess would be that he would he would criticize Trump for not going far enough on that. But like, I think one of the relevant things is like, what would Republican base voters do in response to this and what would sort of media institutions like like Fox News do? And I think we have a lot of compelling evidence, both sort of from political science and from just the experience with Russia in the last election, that people take their cues from from senior elites of, among whom the president is most senior. And, and I expect like if you had polled Paris among GOP voters before a decision was made and then Trump decided to stay in for whatever reason – you would have seen a shift the same way that you saw with Republican attitudes toward Russia after he started sort of cozying up to Putin. The Americans for Prosperity point, though, is is a good one, right? I mean, you you used to be involved in the uh, Coke, you know, web documentation uh, side <laughs> of the the journalistic world, um, and I I don't honestly know that much about it, but definitely like a thing that the Koch brothers have been doing for years is trying to stake out not merely echo the positions of mainstream Republican Party leaders the way some kinds of think tanks and advocacy organizations do, but stake out positions that are similar to, but at least a little bit different from where the GOP is and try to like bend Republican politics Mm -hmm. toward them. And moving to completely delegitimize the climate change issue in Republican Party circles is something they've been, that long predates Donald Trump. Yeah, of course. And um, I think you can see that in McConnell also calling on Trump to pull out of this agreement, you know, represents Kentucky, a lot of coal interests in Kentucky, um, fossil fuel interests generally are just one of the most important interest groups and funders of today's Republican Party. And and they have been for a couple of decades. And that's, and that's the Kochs too. I mean, I think mm -hmm. they, they, like to self-present as pure ideological money rather than transactional interest group money, uh, but they have substantial interests 
specifically in the fossil fuel sector. Yeah, they know where their money comes from. But I, I think what I would point out is that while it's true that the issue of Paris in particular, I could envision, you know, a president, Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush, maybe saying, well, you know, I was against this when it was negotiated, but it's not really binding. It doesn't do all that much, and and we can shape the process more from the inside. So it would be too much of a headache to kind of pull out now. And so, you know, the question of whether any other Republican president would have withdrawn from Paris, I think, is an open one. But the question of what general policies any other Republican president would pursue uh, in their EPA when it comes to environmental regulation or deregulation, um, whether they would make addressing climate change a major priority for their administration. I, I think it's pretty clear that it's very, very low down the party's priority list. I mean, they might have stayed in the Paris Agreement, but they wouldn't have cared very much about trying to invest anything in actually trying to make good on those commitments. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, this is a big change that I think has people know has happened, but to some extent tend to like forget about it at, at times opportunistically. I, I looked back and read the the 2008 Democratic Party platform uh, a few times recently, and it's it's striking how it, it makes some noises about climate change, but the main thematic energy policy point of the 2008 Democrats is the idea of energy independence and the problematic nature of foreign oil, right? Like that's like the main framing. And so we're going to have- Which doesn't make any sense anymore. It did not make a lot of logical sense at the time because people, if you were really in the know, right, you understood in 2008 that the Democrats were the environmentalist party, but they had adopted this framework- that reducing, you know, clean energy and stuff was about reducing dependence on foreign oil. There were some gestures toward the idea of clean coal, which is is produced domestically. And it didn't say anything about uh, fracking or horizontal drilling, because those were not technologies people were familiar with at the time. And the, like, ongoing course of partisan polarization plus the development of much more domestic oil and gas drilling has cut that out, right? Where Democrats are now much more squarely positioned as an anti-fossil fuel development party. And then Republicans, uh, George W. Bush, you know, came from Texas. It was an oil state. He had a very fossil fuel friendly uh, politics. But then his successor as Republican nominee was John McCain, who had a different view on those kind of issues. And it just wasn't, it was clearly not like at the core of what Republicans were about since they could just switch from nominee to nominee. And now they are much more firmly you know, cemented as the party that stands for the idea that digging up coal, fracking for natural gas, offshore drilling for oil is like the economic development strategy for the United States. And Democrats, I think without quite realizing the full implications of this switch, have like put themselves in a I, I don't want to call it an extreme policy because I, I agree with it and you don't want to frame your own ideas as extreme. But relative to where they used to be, it is a much more extreme take that Democrats now have. And it's like less responsive to 
like part of what was happening in 2008 is that there was a whole sort of green jobs message that people were putting out there where the idea was that you could frame this in a way so it was non-threatening to sort of Appalachian and, and other sort of sections of the country that are dependent on fossil fuel for sort of economic development. And, and it was all sort of focus grouped in a way that was highly cognizant of, of what they were going to be attacked on. Whereas now, like I feel like the actual environmental grassroots is much more powerful and much more more vocal and important as a part of the democratic coalition which sort of makes that kind of navigating more difficult right so like we shouldn't build this pipeline because pipelines are bad is like a thing that a vocal constituency in the democratic party wants people to say and I think it's not like a crazy thing to say but like, it's, it's a, correct, but, it's also, but it's also but... not a message with like a ton of nuance yeah and I think um I was looking at some polling on um, uh, partisanship and, and climate change recently. And, and a lot of people have observed how, um, you know, basic opinion on climate science has become increasingly polarized among Democrat and Republican voters over the past few years. But one thing I thought was really interesting is that um, I think this was a Pew poll uh, last December. And 23% of uh, Republican voters said that um, you know, the earth was warming and that humans were the main contributor. And I thought, of course, that's interesting. But if you look at Democratic voters, only two-thirds of them agree with that. So even the sort of acknowledgement in the consensus of the climate science is nowhere near a unanimous position among self-identified Democratic voters. You still have a third of the base who, I mean, it's not just that they don't really care about this. It's that they aren't necessarily even convinced by the science, which I, I felt was a, a little uh, troubling for uh, people who do care about climate change. Yeah, I mean, this remains an important question. I mean, I think I, I saw a lot of uh, uh, trumpeting of, you know, some some polls indicating a public support for, for climate action yesterday coming from Democrats. And I mean, that's true. It's like a true finding that is there. I think you also do see it's difficult for me to point to an instance of an election, whether it was a general election or a primary election, really, where you would say, okay, this person lost because their opinion on climate change was was too right wing. Whereas I think it's it's fairly easy to point to examples of whole country Democrats who have been hampered by this kind of thing. And there's a question in my mind as to how much that sort of green politics political cost has has bled out of the sort of West Virginia, southwestern, real Virginia, eastern Ohio, Kentucky area into the like Michigan, Pennsylvania you know, sort of blue wall zone that that Trump breached. Whereas you could imagine a politics in which Democrats are compensating because they are winning elections in Arizona on a strong pro-solar message. Um, there's a fucking ton of sunshine in, in Arizona, very few coal mines, um, and a actually horribly retrograde uh, public utility there. Um, but it hasn't yet happened. To an extent, you know... Polls are great. People chew over them. Politicians care about polls. But also, when issues have been kicked around for a long time, it's like you need concrete events, kind of like put the fear of God in people. 
And I've never seen that. I've never seen like what is the this is the thing that is going to make a Republican worried. Right. I think fracking specifically has changed this a lot that that sort of the two major sort of shale sites um, are in North Dakota, which was a state that as recently as is 2010 had two Democratic senators for a sort of long period of time and like real Democratic senators who were were not super right wing and like now has one who just got elected by the skin of her teeth and then sort of Pennsylvania and Ohio span the other one. And so you've had sort of an actual large increase in dependence on on fossil fuels in certain very electorally significant states for control of the Senate and in the latter case for the Electoral College. And you've seen zero response to this among among Democrats, which is not to say like I think we should be doing like extremely aggressive things to fight climate change. I want to be clear that this is like a political analysis and not like a normative one. But you need to make that argument and you need to sort of accommodate your, yourself to, to that reality to, to a certain extent. I mean, we all know there's been more and more just sort of age polarization of voting in the United States. And, and you see climate change very much like falling into that span. I mean, where you ha- do have Republicans building their coalition increasingly on like an issue portfolio that appeals very exclusively to old people. And, you know, it makes you wonder where the long run trajectory of this is is supposed to be, Um, particularly because, you know, one reason that I think we have seen in polls public concern about climate change is mounting is that the warming itself continues to mount. Uh, The other news yesterday, along with Paris, was like the opening up of some giant fissure in the Antarctic ice sheet. Uh, I'm not an Antarctic ice sheet scientist. I don't know exactly what the deal is. Um, But at some point, some giant piece of ice is going to break off (laughs) from Antarctica and come floating up north. And reality does tend to intervene in politics, at least on some level. I have been fascinated as a subplot in this whole saga by the legend of Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, um, which I think has been like most firmly established by a a bookended by a pair of Annie Carney articles in in Politico, where she had one in December that was headlined Ivanka Trump climate czar, question mark. And then there was one yesterday about how like Jared and Ivanka are moving on after Paris defeat. Um, But it was this, this whole sort of like longer narrative of Trump's daughter, who he he seems to be quite close to, and his son-in-law, who he was not close to historically, but has become very important part of his, his circle, and that they were kind of these, like, I don't know, uh, culturally liberal New Yorkers who were spearheading an uh, influence of moderation in the Trump administration. As recently as April, uh, and Andrew wrote, wrote about this, but there was, there was this like rise of the globalists that was supposed to be taking place inside the White House, which I think is part of what set up this idea that Paris was a Steve Bannon triumph, because Mm -hmm. relatively recently, what we were hearing was that Jared and Ivanka and Gary Cohn and H.R. McMaster and, and Rex Tillerson had like established dominance and that, you know, whether we were conservative in economics, they were going to pursue like a moderate course on foreign policy and trade issues. Yeah, there was that moment, I think it was a month, a month and a half ago, something like that, where Trump publicly rebuked Bannon and it really seemed to um, be signaling that he was on the outs. But he does seem to have, you know, hanged in there and won out on this issue. But it's also 
sometimes hard to know what's really going on behind the scenes there. I, I think the reporting has been very clear that Ivanka has been pushing against this. Uh, it's not clear how effective she's been, but people can point to things that she tried to do at least. I think what Kushner did is uh, a little less clear. There, there was another report in the Post, I think, um, that said that he actually shared some of Trump's concerns about Paris. And that's after the decision is made. Maybe he just doesn't want to be portrayed as losing out. But I do think that on many issues, the narrative of Jared in particular as being the moderate influence is not actually true. You can see that in the firing of Comey, where he is said to be the top advisor who was pushing most heavily for Trump to fire Comey. Well, okay, yeah, but I I, I don't want to zoom to Jared's heel turn. I think <laughs> I, I want to understand, like, like because because he wasn't just Ivanka or even Ivanka and Jared, right? Like mm-hmm. there was there was this whole story about the globalists, yeah, that I do think is directly relevant to, as you said, distinguishing between like domestic environmental regulation and like the Paris Accord as a diplomatic initiative, mm-hmm. right? And like the globalist viewpoint, I think is fair, represented by all these big multinational companies who are like, oh, Trump, you shouldn't have done that. And their executives in the administration, like Gary Cohn and Rex Tillerson. Or- right, that like there was a desire on the part of America's diplomats, America's big businesses to stay at the table. Well, I don't I don't know. I, I, I think um, this is one of those issues where, I mean, if you look at the issue of trade, trade is an issue where the institutional actors in the Republican Party are aligned with the so-called globalist position. Environmental policy is just not one of those issues. Yes, you can portray Paris as a, you can say that, oh, this is really about diplomacy. It's not about climate change. But I mean, a lot of the conservative activist groups interpreted this about climate change. A lot of the elected officials, the think tank people. I mean, it's it's not really clear just how much in love corporate America was with Paris. You can think back to when Obama was pushing cap and trade in 2009. And it's like, oh, uh, they got a bunch of big companies to sign on and and say that cap and trade was a good idea. And sure, they preferred to be at the table there. Were they crying when the cap and trade bill failed? Uh, No, not at all. Right, right, right. I'm Mike Prada, and on the latest edition of the Limited Upside NBA podcast, it's the Warriors, it's the Cavs, it's the third edition of the NBA Finals. And what better way to preview the on-court stuff, the rivalry, and some of the trash-talking with... The editors from our SB Nation's Cavaliers and Warriors sites, they've got a little bit of an interesting relationship. So this one gets kind of fun. Subscribe on the Listen tab on iTunes or go to SBNation.com to check the episode out. Well, and also, like, I think to, to Andrew's point about the intersection here with mainstream conservatism, sort of the way that climate skepticism has been sold by conservative elites, not just in the last sort of five years, but in the last like 20 or 30 years, has always been sort of imbued with an anti-globalism. That, mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember the whole Agenda 21 thing, where there was a sort of United Nations initiative to 
to sort of promote sustainable development that got picked up by like Glenn Beck and the sort of whole conservative media ecosystem and turned into this sort of conspiracy theory about sort of global domination and, and the UN stomping on property rights. But those sort of like the, the arch populist end of the kind of arguments that you heard like Paul Ryan and, and people like that making. Going back as far as like Kyoto, that, that a lot of the reaction to Kyoto was was standard issue climate skepticism, but some of it was the sense that this was this this international body imposing rules on us that were unfair, that that didn't ask as much of, of other countries of equivalent size and emissions as they asked of us. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that's true, right? That part of the nature of the climate change issue, right, is that everybody agrees that a sort of ultimate solution to emissions requires some measure of global governance. And that is something that has been not welcomed on the grassroots right for decades, I mean, long before anyone would cared about climate change. Seems like the, the Bricker Amendment. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea of like a stronger United Nations that is going to have enforceable rules is not something that populist conservatives are interested in when you add in interest group politics, economic issues, so on and so forth. It's a, it's a recipe for a, a much more forceful uh, kind of pushback. And that is also where you see a different perspective from like a Goldman Sachs executive who I don't want to say Gary Cohn is a secret liberal. The nature of running a multinational business is that you are relatively comfortable with the idea that having the same regulatory framework in multiple different countries is actually preferable for your business than to have a million different ones, right? So like bank executives have a lot of feelings about how they don't like strong bank regulations. They don't at all mind the idea of hammering out bank regulations at a big meeting in Switzerland. For one thing, you tend to get a least common denominator regulatory approach when, when you insist on, on going global. So that's a real difference between a like conservative-leaning business executive and like a Rush Limbaugh listening conservative living somewhere in America. But with Jared, I mean, it, it's worth saying that the like secret liberal Jared Kushner narrative has a foundation in some reality, I would say. I mean, separate from reporting of his actions in the Trump administration, before Donald Trump ran for president, he had this whole life as a Democratic Party donor in New York and New Jersey, which was preceded by his father's life as a Democratic Party donor in New York and New Jersey, where the U.S. attorney from New Jersey, Chris Christie, as part of his, it struck me as a somewhat partisan prosecution of a major New Jersey Democratic Party donor uh, by Christie that wound up getting Kushner thrown in jail. And it's- Kushner's dad. Yes, Kushner's dad, Charles Kushner. Charles Kushner was a real estate developer who uh, was a, a big Democratic donor. Um, just pulling some strings. Uh, Christie got him on a tax thing that then became a very salacious uh, witness tampering <laughs> thing that involved hiring- It was pretty salacious. <laughs> well, well what, did, what did he do exactly? He hired a hooker- to seduce I believe his, his brother-in-law. His brother-in-law was cooperating with uh, the investigators and, and giving them some sort of incriminating information about Charles Kushner. So he, 
I think, paid a prostitute to seduce the brother-in-law, had it videotaped, and then sent the tape to the brother-in-law's wife. So, yeah, it's pretty New Jersey is a great state. <laughs> right. But so, you know, you, you zoom back to before the Trump campaign, and Donald Trump is like this guy. He's on Twitter. He's a birther. Uh, he's on TV. He likes to talk about how he'll maybe run for president someday. And a funny fact about him is that his daughter, Ivanka, like a New York society woman, is married to Jared Kushner, a rich Jewish guy, Democratic Party donor, dad's a Democratic Party donor. You wouldn't have characterized either of them as like huge liberals, but this is a fairly typical social type, right? New York City area business person who probably is liberal on a lot of social and cultural issues, who has a pragmatic need to be on friendly terms with New York area elected officials who are Democrats and probably, you know, behind the scenes is like, hey, man, can we like not raise taxes that much? Well, and and Jared also owned the New York Observer, which is not sort of a a high salience publication if you live outside New York. And but especially like in the mid 2000s was like a notable somewhat left of center regional alt newspaper. I mean, these are you're right. I mean, these are your prototypical like moderate Democrat like social type. Right. Which is like practically the opposite social type of the like, let's go to Trump country and, you know, investigate what like embittered coal miners think about, you know, big city elites. That is the gut level foundation on which I think this whole Jared and Ivanka narrative is built is that even if you don't know Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, people who like live in D.C. and New York and write about politics know that kind of person. And that kind of person is, like, not a Donald Trump enthusiast, not a, like, Breitbart reader. And it is very hard, even though all of the evidence (laughs) suggests otherwise, it's, like, hard for people to conceptualize the idea that, like, Jared Kushner is, like, an all-in Trumper. Well, and it's hard because of their social networks also that like they they know that person because like they go to the same parties, they see them around. There just are some issues where it is more okay to to deviate than others. Like you can go to some of those parties and be like, yeah, I think taxes are a little too high and people would be like, ah, whatever. But you can't like say that you don't think gay people should have equal rights or that you don't like believe the science around climate change. And so – there are real social pressures toward the kind of views that people are imputing to them, which I think is part of why, like, Steve Bannon was super skeptical of them because he, like, assumed that anyone in that social milieu would, like, come with those kinds of sellout views. And this also seems to be some of the, like, the back-channel journalism, right? Is like Ivanka trying to, like, I don't know what, like, say to her friends back on the Upper East Side, like, no, don't worry about it. I'm, I'm like, I'm trying to be constructive here. Yeah, but I think there's a real question of just how much Jared Kushner even cares about policy. He, uh, <laughs> right. you say that he comes from a certain social class and social circles, but he didn't really demonstrate any deeply passionate views on the major political issues of the day that were publicly known. Um, He's very clearly an ambitious guy. He very clearly um, wanted to exercise influence, which is why he bought this newspaper and supposedly um, kept asking its reporters to write hit pieces on people he didn't like. 
uh, he he seems a very um, instrumental kind of um, he wants power and influence and he wants to get his way and and I don't think that he would really stick his neck out to you know fight the good fight so to speak on any policy issues necessarily he 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 wants the administration to work and he wants to maintain his influence in the administration right I, I mean to to me. I would say that, like, the key thing to understanding Jared Kushner, in my opinion, is that, you know, he was a he, he was he was in my class at, at Harvard and your dorm, too. Right. Yeah. Kirkland House. Dylan and I both Kirkland House guys. Andrew from Elliott House across the street. It's a very diverse panel here. Jared Kushner was like, if you knew him. He was the kind of guy. <laughs> you who, knew him like Matt knew. <laughs> he he was the kind of guy who seemed like maybe not in the smartest two thirds of the class. I would not have said if you had asked me in like 2006, like is Jared Kushner like the single stupidest person you ever met in college? I'm like no, you know. Um, there's like a bunch of rich kids there who you figure probably dad was a donor, but. It came out later, and there was, like, a book written yeah. about corruption in college admissions. And through some happenstance of reporting, Jared Kushner wound up being, like, a major case study in this. And there was uh, extensive discussion of how his dad had made this $2 million donation on a uh, installment plan. And they had, like, quotes from Kushner's high school teachers about how he was, like, way too dumb and they were like shocked <laughs> to see he got into Harvard and it was good it's a good book it's like an important sort of social topic but it, it struck me as it's one of these things like journalism is hard you know what I mean like you only have the sources that you have so then you have to write about like the it the specific cases that you can write about in detail but it wound up creating this weird situation where like this one guy was just like a single-handed stand-in for like the whole phenomenon of like people with rich fathers getting them into colleges that maybe their SAT scores weren't that good enough for and you have to imagine that was like a very humiliating experience for him. There was like a lot of pickup of this. The book was reviewed in the New York Times and the Boston Globe. There were lots of blog posts written about it. Then when he bought the the Observer, this like all came up again in the coverage. You know, there was like all this like gawker jokes and and blah 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 blah. blah. And it strikes me as a guy who like he tried his best. You know, like he's there, he's grown up in New Jersey. His dad has this lucrative but kind of tacky real estate empire in, in northern New Jersey. And uh, Alec McGillis has just a great piece about kind of slumlording in, in Baltimore County. And then like Jared Kushner, he's going to go to Harvard. He's going to go to NYU Law School. He's going to buy the New York Observer. He's going to marry Ivanka Trump. He's going to like throw some good parties. And like he's going to be like part of the He's on crowd. Gossip Girl. Yeah, on Gossip At Girl. At a fundraiser for Democratic candidate Trip Archibald. As I recall. Yes. And he didn't, he didn't stick the landing. You know what I mean? And that is the way he is exactly like Donald Trump, who like has spent his whole life like in Midtown Manhattan being a rich guy and like getting Hillary Clinton to come to his wedding and stuff like that without ever being someone who is like respected in New York business or media circles as like actually this is a smart sharp businessman and like now they have the chance to like show everybody that they should have been taken more seriously this whole time 
it's a hell of a way to run a government, but it, it definitely makes sense as a as a psychological theory. There's that I think Maggie Haberman tweeted something last night about how Trump's overriding urge is to not be laughed at. And being president is an odd career choice for someone who doesn't want to be laughed at by millions of people. But there is a degree of sort of sticking it to the haters. I mean, with Trump, with Trump and being laughed at, right, it's, there's always this like quicksand phenomenon where it's like, oh, they're laughing at me now. So I'm going to put an even bigger Trump sign on my bigger hotel in Chicago. And then people are just laughing more because that's what's funny about Trump <laughs> is that he puts giant Trump signs on everything. But at the same time, he did like stick it to people. And, you know, he he worked the levers. He needed all kinds of special permits and stuff. And like he got the deal done. And like now, like he became president. But like people are only laughing at him like more than ever, because it's like when you're ridiculous, the more you do to be a high profile person who's the center of attention, the more you're going to get laughed at. Right. Because like he's a ridiculous person. And the only way to get people to stop laughing at Donald Trump would be to like not be a ridiculous person, but he's clearly not going to change that. So he can only become like more powerful. But then it's it's just funnier when it's not terrifying. I, th- I think also the experience of the 2016 campaign probably taught Jared Kushner, as it did many others, of you know what what the elites uh, in. New York and in cities, maybe thinking and and laughing at. Being on the right side of that is not necessarily the best and most effective path to political power uh, and winning a national election. So the idea that he's been on this campaign, he's been taking a lot of heat for controversial stuff his father-in-law has been saying on the campaign trail, and then Trump wins, and then he's in the White House. And so why would we expect... Jared Kushner to, you know, carry water for New York elite views on things at this point when the outcome of the election seems to pretty clearly have taught him that they are out of step with um, enough people in enough states to win the Electoral College. But so this is where I think it's worth talking about Russia, because this has been, I think, the thing that really came in like at a right angle to the the old Jared and the globalists narrative is that it's become clear over the past couple of weeks that Kushner was at the center of the decision to fire James Comey, and then also that the reason he was at the center of the decision to fire James Comey is that he is very much at the center of this Russia inquiry, right? That you might have thought, okay, the Mary son-in-law is like the guy who's going to be giving Trump advice on how to compartmentalize this and get away from it. But actually, he is sufficiently personally involved. I mean, of all this stuff swirling around Trump and Russia, the only thing that like really, truly directly implicates Donald Trump is the allegation that he phoned up James Comey, tried to get him to drop the investigation, and then fired him because he didn't do it, right? And it seems like Kushner was the voice of like non-caution on that call. And that's because they're looking at these series of of meetings that he had after the election uh, with the Russian ambassador uh, Kislyak uh, and with the bank uh, whose Russian, full Russian name I won't try to pronounce, but we we call it VBE here in America. And so, I I mean, you've been putting together sort of like big, like macro Russia timeline. uh, And what's what's like the, the Jared angle on this? I think the Jared angle 
it's still a little unclear what happened and, and when regarding Jared during the campaign itself. But during the transition, it's been pretty thoroughly reported and um, I believe confirmed by the White House that in early December, Kushner and Flynn met with Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak in Trump Tower. And um, then a couple weeks later, Kushner met with this uh, Russian banker, Sergei Gorkov. And uh, there are more sort of details being filled in on this by the day. Post reported just this week that after this meeting with the banker, the banker flew directly to Japan, uh, where Vladimir Putin was at the time. They've also reported that um, the White House and the bank are giving somewhat different stories about just what Kushner was meeting with this Russian banker for. The White House says that it was um, to discuss diplomacy, basically, as, as, as one of many meetings that Kushner had with foreign dignitaries and so on. And uh, the bank says that it's about the bank's own investment strategy, that it was basically a business meeting. And this is a bank that has been linked pretty closely with Putin that um, is viewed by many in U.S. intelligence as sort of doing the Russian government's bidding uh, with various investments, uh, the place, the places it puts its money. I mean, so Sergei Gorkov is a graduate of the Russian, like, spy academy and a, a veteran of the Russian intelligence services, yes. which is not a... The the Russian economy is different from the American economy, <laughs> and it's not, like, totally unheard of for people with that kind of background to, like, really just kind of be businessmen in the way— I, It would be ridiculous in the United States for some—you know, if you were, like, the head of J.P. Morgan Chase, but also were a 15-year veteran of the CIA, that would be, like, super-duper-duper duper suspicious. But— Major Russian companies have a lot of links to the government. This is a particular kind of link to the Russian government. And also the Trump administration story that they took a meeting with this government-linked Russian bank whose head is a graduate of the Russian spy school for diplomatic purposes, strongly suggests. <laughs> so, I mean, because otherwise, what's the diplomatic purpose, yeah, right? Yeah. If their view isn't that this was aligned to the Putin regime, what would the, the meeting possibly have been? Whereas the Russians are trying to say, no, like, it's nothing to do with that. Because part of their story about the bank, obviously, is that it isn't just a front for the FSB, because otherwise right. it wouldn't be a very good front. <laughs> well, the, well, the other thing that's come out is that um, these meetings that Kushner had and, and Flynn was involved in, uh, the first one, uh, at least, um, were one of the goals, something that Kushner at least mentioned, if not outright suggested, was the idea of setting up some sort of a secret um, line of communication that could be used between the Trump team and, uh, it seems, the Russian government. And the idea would be to have this line of communication uh, on at Russian diplomatic facilities in the U.S. Or, or on Russian equipment. And it sure seems like the purpose of something like that would be so the Trump team could talk to 
representatives of the Russian government during the transition without having U.S. intelligence officials become aware of it or have it be picked up. And, and the fact that none of this, these meetings were not disclosed until March, it's still not clear what exactly was discussed there. There's just a lot of shadiness around this. And, and, and little by little, there's more and more coming out that, that makes it look weird. Like the surveillance point, I think, is really important that like there's nothing shady necessarily about a president-elect having contacts with foreign regimes. Like, I think that's like part of the process is, is that you're managing a transition. But you're supposed to be doing that in coordination with the current administration and, and on the up and up. And like, if you're doing it, you, you should not be afraid of your own spy agencies finding out what you're saying. And I, I think it's sort of the initial... And they were going to take over the government in just a month or a month and a half anyway. So so this this obsession with just for one month, like it seems odd to set up a secret line of communication that would expire in a month. What seems alternatively possible is that they wanted to continue to use that secret line of communication, you know, once in office. That that's just speculation. And we I mean I, really I, I but I think I think the newer story that we that was out in, in Yahoo, right, which says that this is separate, but I think related. It says that in the early, very early days of the Trump administration, there was an effort to sort of start the wheels turning on relaxing sanctions on Russia and that State Department personnel. Especially got, the sanctions that Obama had just put on in retaliation for the hacks. Right. right? And that State Department personnel got wind of this, sort of went to Capitol Hill and were like, you guys should legislatively entrench these sanctions so Trump can't take them off. There was bills introduced to that effect. Then Trump backed off relaxing of the sanctions. And then Bob Corker sort of put the kibosh on the legislation. It seemed like essentially what happened is that like the permanent apparatus of government successfully short-circuited an effort by the incoming Trump administration officials to do Russia a solid. Fear that that sort of thing might happen is exactly the kind of reason why you might want to be able to have contacts with Russia that cannot be surveilled by the American government itself. Now, the particular wrinkle here where what Kushner wanted to do was walk into the Russian embassy and use Russia's Presumably, Russia has some encrypted way of communicating back with Moscow that the American government can't tap. I don't know what that would be, but it seems to be the premise of the story is that such a system exists. Kushner was asking to use that. It seems like the Russians said no because you don't let Americans into your secret communication facility because they might be spying. Especially if they might be secret administration officials. Because they might be spying on you. I mean, a deeper mystery of this is that, like, I have an app on my phone called Signal that provides encrypted communications around the world without me going to the Russian embassy. Maybe they never heard of that on the Trump team. Um, but this is actually a very solved some of them have reportedly been using it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, at any rate, the story that we have about the Russian embassy, right, like that story ends with the secure channel not being established, right? Mm -hmm. What we don't know is whether somebody then subsequently said, like, hey, dummy, 
Like, this is, you're making this way too complicated. Like, you could just, like, hit Putin up on WhatsApp, right? And so it's possible, we don't know what's in the bridge, right, between this this transition meeting, the effort to set up the secure channel, and it doesn't happen. And then there's this post-transition sanctions talk that it seems like it gets scuttled. And what we don't have a clear picture of is, was some other channel less dopey than Jared Kushner walks into the Russian embassy successfully established? There's this weird story about the Seychelles where, I guess, Eric Prince, the Blackwater guy, went. Um, but all that cloak and dagger stuff is just odd to me because like, it would be fairly easy to establish an encrypted communications channel between Michael Flynn and some high-ranking uh, Russian officials if they, like, bothered to, like, Google for 15 minutes about what's a good way to do this. And we don't yet know if they ever pulled that off. And what they would use it for. Like, something that I, I feel, and I'm not, like, a national security expert of any kind, and, and to some degree, the scandalousness of this doesn't really depend on what the ultimate endgame is. Like, no one actually knows why Nixon wanted a Watergate break-in. Or if he did. Or if he did, or if he ordered it. or I mean, I, I, there was a good piece by uh, by Julian Sanchez at, at Cato sort of arguing that from the Russians' point of view, like outright collusion on election tampering doesn't make a lot of sense, that it's just sort of too high risk for them um, relative to to just sort of passively hacking and, and hoping that you can can influence things. And so I don't know what people are expecting to find here. I think there's sort of like the extreme Louise Mensch, like we're going to find out that Trump is a literal FSB agent um, version, which seems clearly false. And it seems like we're looking at something that is more likely in the realm of just sort of ordinary corruption and like financial dealings than it is in in the realm of compromat. Well, I think we really don't know. I mean, Andrew mentioned just this question of the forms. I mean, that. The problem is, is that when you start getting yourself involved in stuff that you know you're, in some sense, not supposed to be doing, and you're trying to cover your tracks, which it seems like they clearly were, you often break some rules. And the rules that you broke are often not themselves super Like, Elliot Spitzer, right, went down ultimately because he, like, violated some rule about structuring of right. bank account deposits. But like Vinny Elliot, Hester went down because he put in the wrong amount into his checking account. Right. But like the Dennis Hester scandal is the sexual abuse of the boys, even though the law breaking is like a kind of obscure bank regulation. So, you know, the, the kind of jeopardy, like legal jeopardy that people might be in and like the scandalous nature of the conduct are somewhat separable questions. Yeah, and and I think one other thing that we should at least mention here is that the administration is claiming that a lot of these um, contacts with Russia during the transition were motivated with a policy goal of improving ties with Russia or making some sort of deal with Russia that would help with the Syria situation. Uh, this has been a longtime interest of Michael Flynn's for whatever reason, uh, it is something that he was pushing for very hard. His his sort of big idea on how to reshape American foreign policy was to get closer with Russia and to sort of turn more of a blind eye to what Assad was doing and um, and and target ISIS more and like make some sort of deal with Russia to 
to fight ISIS. So it is at least possible that Flynn was talking to Russian officials about this during the transition. But the role of Jared Kushner in this is a little more strange. He, yes, is close to Trump. He's the son-in-law. He, this was sort of even before he had this enormous portfolio in the administration where he was tasked with everything from solving the opioid crisis to Middle East peace. So it's not really clear why he would be involved with this stuff. I I mean, that's what I think, you know, makes this troubling. I mean, it's such a storm cloud for Donald Trump personally, is that one way scandals sometimes go, right, is the sort of Iran-Contra direction where the scandal is bad, but at the same time, you end up basically like lopping off just like a portion of the senior staff and saying like, those guys fucked up. It helps to have a president who like clearly has Alzheimer's and is not responsible for what's going on. But Trump actually has some of that same quality, right? I mean, if you heard about some contentious new initiative that was coming out of the education department, you would not say, like, obviously, (laughs) that must have been workshopped at the highest levels in the White House. It's just super plausible that, like, senior Trump administration officials are freelancing on one thing or another. Flynn was fired quite some time ago. So you, you could have imagined a version of the story where it's like, roads lead to Michael Flynn. Michael Flynn got caught messing something up, got fired. Democrats are always going to think, like, there was more to the story, but who knows. Jared Kushner is not, for one thing, he hasn't been fired. He has only uh, gone on seemingly an upward trajectory in terms of his actual influence in the government since this transition period. When Flynn got fired, Kushner was not also fired, it really makes it seem like not a freelancing story, but that whatever it is Flynn was doing, he was doing truly at the behest of Donald Trump, which is why his son-in-law was there as like a marker of personal involvement. Flynn Mm -hmm. would be a logical person to talk to the Russians because he had a relationship with them. But, you know, you want to make it clear that like, you have a, a real line in, you send, you know, a, a family emissary to these kind of things. That's how Trump uh, likes to do the, this kind of business. Um, it was it was Jared Kushner who came with him, not the national security advisor, but Kushner came with him into the room to meet with Bibi Netanyahu. You know, he's like a kind of a, a shadow Trump out there. And we don't know what the story is, but whatever the story is, I think it's going to be hard to say, oh, well, that was Jared. I had nothing to do with it. It's also striking Like, if the plan was to implement a sort of controversial Trump initiative to to cozy up to the Russians in hopes of of allying with Assad to a certain degree and combining to fight ISIS, like, that failed really spectacularly. Well, Flynn was (laughs) fired. Right. And, you know, once he was gone, pretty much no one else in the national security establishment wanted to do this. What's interesting, though, is that Trump on one level pivoted away from this whole policy, but like on another level has not, right? I mean, it Mm -hmm. is striking that Donald Trump fired Michael Flynn. He established a kind of normal Republican hawk foreign policy team. Mattis has like 
stationed U.S. troops in the Baltic, stuff like that. But like Trump would not give the Article 5 endorsement that his own advisors were saying he was going to give. He won't just like throw us a bone and be like, Vladimir Putin is a bad guy. Like, I don't agree with that when he kills dissidents. And Trump keeps, like, saying that Flynn is, like, a good man who got a raw deal on this. Um, They are apparently moving now to give back the spy compounds that the Obama administration seized. It's, like, the one topic on which Trump appears to be swimming against the current of his own of like everything, the political reality in the United States, of the team that he has semi-built around him but has sort of been forced on him is like at every margin, Donald Trump personally seems to be shifting things into more of a like, hey, can't we get along with Russia? Hey, can't we stop, you know, carrying water for these European allies? And it's, I mean, I don't know what to say about it other than that it's odd. Yeah. I mean, he also seems to have detached the Syria issue a bit. Like, he didn't, like, literally bomb Assad, which yes. <laughs> which f- feels like a rather big caveat. But that's what I mean, actually. His affection for Russia has become untethered from right. this specific policy. Because, I mean, if you bracket everything else in the American universe, just, like, the basic idea of the Syria war is super complicated, and instead of playing this incredibly complicated game, we should play a simple game where we work with Assad and fight ISIS— I don't know. Everyone I trust, I'm not an expert on this. Everybody seems to think that's a bad idea. I can certainly see how someone who didn't know that much about it would think that was a good idea. Look at any of these convoluted maps of Syria, and I think that notion will suggest itself to you, and then you would take a lengthy explanation of why that's a bad idea. The bigger picture idea that just, like, the American government should, like, say nice things about Vladimir Putin all the time and, like, maybe undermine the NATO alliance, that I don't see is suggested by anything, right? Like, that's a really weird idea that Trump has stuck with, even as the Syria mission seems to have completely fallen apart. Yeah, and I think um, one other piece of that may be a little suggestive that this is not really about what they're saying it's about, this Syria thing, is that um, Trump has just been really trying to stick up for Flynn, defend Flynn, tried to kill the investigation into Flynn. Reportedly wants to rehire him. (laughs) Yes. One report says he wishes he could have him back in the White House once this is all cleared up. And I think one explanation of this is that, hey, Donald Trump just really personally likes Michael Flynn and thinks he's a good guy. And then there's another pretty obvious explanation that Michael Flynn is under a lot of investigative scrutiny right now. It is not clear what he knows about Trump, if anything, that may be incriminating. So uh, there's a pretty obvious motive that goes beyond Trump's personal affection for Flynn, for him to be uh, doing all this stuff, messing with the investigation, sending Flynn a message that says, uh, stay strong. So 
So I don't know. We'll see where things go. <laughs> Only time will tell. Um, okay, I think we're go- we're going to wrap it up with that. Um, thanks, Andrew, uh, for for coming on. Thanks, Dylan, for for having us back. We could probably solve this whole Russia problem by giving everyone a, a flat monthly check. Um, Fund it with oil revenue. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's how they do it in Alaska. Uh, thanks to our producer, uh, Peter Leonard. Thanks to all you for for listening. Um, check out the Facebook group if you haven't already. Uh, you should join uh, if you haven't already. Uh, we're going to be uh, starting up a, a new uh, a white paper club. Uh, so people can uh, sort of join in in the discussion that we that we have on our, our Wednesday research papers. Uh, it's really cool. Um, you're going to enjoy it. Share the podcast with with friends, family, loved ones, uh, random strangers, social media followers, everyone. And we will see you next week. <laughs>